ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Club time! Not quite. You know what I mean. Welcome to the minefield where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life or sometimes we just vacate that field and talk about something that we want to have a chat about. That's what we're doing today, I think. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hi, Scott. Hey, Waleed. And what a show have we got in store for people today. I mean, this is really, really exciting. And I'll, I'll confess, we've tackled some big topics before. We've tackled some ambitious objects before. This particular one, I'm not sure if I've ever told you, but I remember hearing Stone Gossard. He's the rhythm guitarist for Pearl Jam. Uh, there was one tour. Eddie Vedder, the frontman, became seriously ill. They needed to find somebody else to front the band during a sold-out European tour. And they got Neil Young. And Stone said that playing on stage with Neil Young was like hopping into the cage with the lion. In this particular instance, devoting a show to Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own is like hopping into a cage with the wolf. Um, <laughs> my, my favorite literary critic, James Wood, he always refers to her as the wolf. And I think that's exactly right. There's something strangely seductive. There's something incredibly inviting. There's something disarmingly experimental and playful about this essay. And yet it is searching. It is eviscerating. Do you think it's eviscerating? I do. I do. Why? The wolf invents a literary style, what I think could reasonably be called a fictional essay, populated with real and fictitious characters in order to explore a topic that is, by any reckoning, of the utmost significance. A topic that is... I'm sorry. Sorry, can I stop you there? Sure. By any reckoning? Yes. Uh, Doesn't she actually, towards the end of this essay, admit... The argument that it's not actually of great significance? The topic of women and fiction? Yeah. Yes, that's right. So she is using a fragile receptacle, which is a term that she, a word that she uses repeatedly in the essay that I always find myself a little bit discomforted by every time she does. She's using a fragile receptacle in order to wrestle with something, to wrestle out loud and to wrestle in a way that is highly indeterminative. Uh, she doesn't offer conclusion. She offers one small opinion and she offers one small exhortation uh, shrouded in a degree of satire and even disdain. And yet the thing that she's wrestling with, the very status, I would even say the moral status of women within human life and culture, the degree to which women for their own sake, for the sake of their souls, for the sake of their minds, for the sake of their language, for the sake of their future, have to be afforded certain fundamental things. And yet that very affordance that has been so long denied them uh, is also something that has been punctuated at various stages over the course of human history with a degree of violence that, again, she discusses, she points to, Um, In a matter that's both demure, she's not gratuitous or excessive. Virginia Woolf is never gratuitous or excessive. And yet it's also arresting. It's deeply troubling. So she's doing something incredibly serious. I'd even say something morally serious, but she's doing it in a way that is deliberately experimental, playful, 
irreverent and that is borne out by words that she says uh, are going to be riding on the back effectively of a steady stream of lies, which is precisely what fiction is. How sarcastic do you think it is? There's times I was, as I was reading, I, I wasn't sure entirely how I was meant to take this sentence or that. Mm. And I couldn't tell if she was being funny or making a genuine concession about something mm. or being sarcastic. Mm. Yeah. I didn't really know. And I wouldn't say this was a dominant feature of my experience reading it, but I, there were just times where I didn't quite know what her intention was. And part of that is, I think, the passage of time. You know, writing styles have changed so much. Language has changed so much in the way that people communicate. It sort of made me realise just how temporal our reading is. Really, yes, and that's how, right. How perceptive we are in picking up moods and quirks when a contemporary is writing, but how hard it gets the further you go back. I just wondered if you could tell me the answer to that. Mm, mm, Do well, we know the answer to that? Uh, does anybody know the answer to anything in Virginia Woolf's work? I mean, she is one of the great experimentalists. I would also say that by any reckoning, she is in the top two or three greatest authors of the first half of the 20th century. What she was able to do with the economy with which she did it and the lightness of language and the seriousness of topic, but also with a fair degree of brevity, which is unusual, especially when you think about some of her rivals. Um, I would suggest that she does not operate in a sarcastic mode, with one exception. So for the most part, she has no difficulties dealing with absurdity. She loves pointing out absurdities within contexts that seem very grave, very weighty. Um, so one example would be the appearance of the Manx cat at the Oxbridge mm. College, um, which is both funny and I think deliberately absurd. Another it's probably my favorite line in the book, to be perfectly honest, where she, during the second day, she goes into uh, the British Museum and she confesses herself to feeling as though she is a thought in the head of a giant bald man's forehead. In other words, the dome of the British Museum is like mm -hmm. a giant bald forehead. And she finds herself both imprisoned and diminished within this. There's one passage, though, Willie, which I think is deliberately sarcastic. It's the very end. I should say, this is a fictional essay. She adopts a voice other than her own for the majority of the essay, right up until the very, very last three pages. She adopts the guise of Mary Beaton. But she says, you could call me Mary Seaton or Mary Carmichael. It doesn't really matter. So the idea is a Mary, a general woman, an anonymous woman, let's just put it this way. So that's the voice in which she writes. It's something that anybody who's read, say, Jane could see would be familiar with. J.M. Coetzee is invited to deliver, say, the Tanner Lectures or the Nobel Prize uh, Lecture, and he writes a story about an Australian academic or novelist who's been invited to go to a particular place and to deliver a lecture. So you're never quite sure, is this what the person believes? Are they distancing themselves from their own words? Are they holding up a kind of experiment and then inviting us to weigh it, to consider objections to it? Is there something about the differentiation between the author and the speaking voice that invites us to engage in a form of criticism. In other words, these are suggestions for you to weigh up. There's one moment, though, where I think Virginia's voice is entirely her own. Um, so anybody who's read A Room of One's Own will know that the one opinion that she offers is that for a woman to be able to write fiction, 
She needs to have a room of her own, preferably with a lock, to uh, give herself privacy, space, room for thought, and freedom from interruption. Maybe other freedoms as well. We can talk about that soon. And the other thing that she needs is a sum of money that is her own each year. She nominates 500 pounds. At the end of the essay, this is what Virginia writes. When you reflect on these immense privileges, and here she's referring to the privileges that have most recently been afforded to women. When you reflect upon these immense privileges and the length of time during which they have been enjoyed, she's mentioning here the founding of two women's colleges at Cambridge. She's mentioning the passage of two laws at the end of the 19th century that made it so that women's income, married women's income, could in fact belong to them. And she's referring to the extension of the right to vote in 1919. She's speaking this in 1928. She's writing this then in 1929. She says, when you think on these immense privileges and the length of time during which they have been enjoyed, and the fact that there must be at this moment some 2,000 women capable of earning over 500 pounds a year in one way or another, you will agree that the excuse of lack of opportunity, training, encouragement, leisure, and money no longer holds good. In other words, when 2,000 women have the ability to go to Cambridge, when we have access to our own money, when we are given the right to vote, and all of these things have been accorded to us over the last 40 years, there's no excuse that stands in the way of women being able to write like Shakespeare or like T.S. Eliot uh, or like E.M. Forster. So that's the one point, I think, in the entire book where she engages in withering sarcasm. These things have come to us late, and now you're saying there's nothing standing in our way? And now you're saying that we should be able to shrug off centuries of patriarchal oppression and exclusion? I think that's the one moment. The rest of it is really in an absurd and an exploratory or playful mode. So I'm sort of conscious of the fact there'll be plenty of people listening who've never read this. And it's fine that we've assigned it as homework, but it's a lot of homework for a radio show. Let's be clear about that. So how do you want to do this, Scott? Uh, well, I've got a proposal. Okay. Firstly, I can't imagine anything more inappropriate than the two of us banging on about Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just not appropriate, and I want to bring in our guest, not least because our guest is spectacular, also because, quite frankly, the subject matter demands it. I wouldn't mind offering just a very brief mud map of the way that the essay as a whole is structured, because I think it's kind of important, and it helps us kind of get our bearings later on. Okay. So, A Room of One's Own had its origins, most people would know, as two talks, two lectures, that Virginia Woolf was invited to give in October 1928 at the two women's colleges at Cambridge, uh, Girton and Newnham. She then expanded those over the course of the next year into a 100-page essay that's divided up into six. Now, I like to think of them as walks or journeys. They really take place, according to the fictional world of these six walks, they really take place over three days. The first journey begins at a river. She sinks down. And again, she here is Mary Beaton, this fictional identity that she adopts. She sinks down a line of thought into a river. And she pulls up this idea that for a woman to be creative, to engage in fiction, she needs a room of her own. She needs money of her own. She then engages on a walk, on a journey 
to two colleges, one called Oxbridge and the other called Fernham. Oxbridge is wealthy, fabulously wealthy. It's a men's college, effectively. She describes the foundations of that college as having gold and jewels poured into it. She describes the lunch that she enjoyed there. And during that, she hears the hum, the poetry that's inherent to the voices of the people there gathered. When they eat well, they can speak well, they can love well, they can socialize well. She then has a further meal later that same day made up of beef, of basic potatoes and vegetables, of custard and prunes. She describes the prunes as being as tough as a miser's heart. This is a women's college, and it says something again about the conditions in which creativity, the mind, sociality are being starved. And it's what's interesting to me, Willie, is that during this first journey, this first walk on this first day, she says that she is barred from places, and she has places with permission opened up to her. But as she is leaving them, she hears the gates softly shutting behind her. In other words, she's surrounded by places she's not allowed to go, on lawns, in libraries, in other company, unless she is granted permission. The following day, she goes to the British Museum because she wonders why, why are women fed so badly and men so well? Why are women impoverished and men so rich? And so she thinks that the only way of doing the necessary research is to go to this great bald man's head, the British Library. And in it, not only does she feel swamped, but I think quite deliberately, she portrays herself as a thought in a man's mind. She is something, woman that is, she is something to be studied, to be scrutinized, to be talked about. And it's fascinating to me that she feels not only overwhelmed by this, but she also feels as though lingering beneath the scrutiny of man's minds, there's something in the middle of it that lurks. She describes it as a certain anger. And so while she's thinking about what it means to be a thought in a man's mind, she scribbles a picture of an angry sullen professor, and she wonders, where does this anger come from? Why should women be the object of men's anger? I'm going to leave her answer until later in our conversation. So those mark two days, walk number one, walk number two, chapter one, chapter two. Uh, Journey number three, four, and five all take place within a room, standing in front of a bookshelf. She surveys histories, she surveys modern fiction, and then she surveys a fictional book of her own making. She adopts another alter ego, Mary Carmichael, and a fictional book called Life's Adventure. And she scrutinizes the material conditions within which women live. What does that do to the quality of writing? What does it do to the ability to express themselves? And what does it say about why the novel should be a form that women should reach for? And then the final. Should is probably the, the right word there. Do reach for. Do reach for. That's probably right. So she's pondering the the fact that once women started writing, the novel was the way they did it, and laments particularly that it wasn't poetry. She does, but she also says that poetry had a certain rigidity about it because of the way that it's framed by men and come through men. She describes the novel as being sufficiently pliable in women's hands, which I think is kind of interesting. The final chapter I don't want to say much about. It's the third day. She describes herself, Mary Beaton, that is, looking out a window. She returns to the idea of a river, but now it's 
a social river, a river flowing through London. She describes a man and a woman being born by this river towards one another. They get into a taxi with one another. And she says, there are all these divisions. There are these separations. There is superiority and inferiority. There is hostility and retaliation. There are claims and counterclaims. And above all, there's violence. There's violence. But she says, maybe there is something about life that draws these two parts together so that they only find their happiness, but also they can only discover their moral identity in one another's presence and through one another's eyes. And at this point, she floats an idea that is proven scandalous in many respects, the idea of a kind of aesthetic androgyny, that within any human being, there are both parts. There's male and female. And that the war between them, the struggle, is the thing that in some respects, in many respects, needs to be overcome. And then she adopts her own voice. And she makes clear that this is an experiment that she's engaged in. It's open for scrutiny. And now she places this delicate, delicate gift in the hands of the readers, of the hearers, and then offers them to either take it up or to reject it. But above all, to wrestle with it. Scott, we have a guest. Our guest. I mean, funnily enough, when I recently reread A Room of One's Own, one of the modern novels that first came to mind was by Charlotte Wood, and it's called The Natural Way of Things, which explores in many respects so many of the same themes, but in a, let's call it more confrontational mode. So who could be more appropriate to join us than Charlotte Wood herself? She's an award-winning Australian novelist. Her most recent novel is called Stone Yard Devotional. She's on a book tour to promote that novel, which makes the fact that she's joined us all the more precious. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Hi, Scott. Hi, Waleed. Thanks for having me. So where do you want to plant your flag? Well, this is an instruction book for me. This is a book about how to write and how to be a woman writer. You know, I reread it a couple of times. I've read it before, obviously. I reread it a couple of times leading up to this. But I guess what I take from this book in the end is two points. Art, great art, needs total intellectual freedom. And intellectual freedom depends on material things. And that women have been excluded from great art because they've been excluded from material resources, basically. And then, you know, all those um, sort of rifts are out and away from it. I think she's very, very playful. I love her humour that I find through almost the whole thing, but especially when she's talking about the way that men talk about women, mm. these great men in the, um, in the British Museum, you know, that fantastic list when she's going through the index. She looks up women and here are the references, things like habits in the Fiji islands of, <laughs> weaker in the moral sense then, uh, less hair on the body of, vanity of attractiveness of, and then onto the men's opinions, you know, this list of so-and-so's opinion, Lord such-and-such's opinion, Samuel Butler's opinion. And at the end of that, she says, why does Samuel Butler say a wise man never says what he thinks of women? And she says, wise men never say anything else, apparently. <laughs> you know, so she's so sharp and funny. But what I also love about this book, like all her books, is this beautiful flowing river of thought that she just feels very free to step away from, you know, the topic and 
as you say, go on these walks, these meanders that lead her all over the place. I think it's a very thrilling book, actually. Can I ask you just one quick thing, though, about this meandering? Because you're right, it is a flow. I mean, she wrote it hot on the heels of To the Lighthouse, Mm -hmm. um, which adopts much the same style, much the same rhythm. But one of the things that immediately struck me about the book is the presence and the importance of interruptions. So there are her own interruptions where she, I mean, it's, if you just want to have a little bit of fun, just notice the number of times that but dash Mm -hmm. appears in the piece where she breaks off her own line of thought. No, no, I'm not going to go any further down that track. Uh, She worries about wandering. She worries about getting lost. But I think even more importantly are the extraneous interruptions. Mm -hmm. She's on an important track and something comes along. And knocks her off. The first one, of course, is the The beetle. beetle. That's right. I see the interruptions as closely connected to, and in many respects even ethically connected to, the importance of a room, and if preferable, a room with a lock. Do do you want to kind of flesh that out for us? Yeah, well, that's what the room is, is all about, is the freedom from interruption, the privacy that women, in her view, have never been allowed to have, because... They haven't got any money because what have their mothers been doing? They should have been, you know, creating wealth for their daughters. And, you know, there's another funny part where she says, well, what are, what have our mothers been doing? Have they been powdering their noses all these centuries? Mm. You know, oh, that's right. They've had 13 children, which they've had to you know, feed for six months, play with for five years. You're not allowed to let them run in the street as the Russians do. There's just this sort of sharp... Uh, satirical vein all the way through. But the interruptions, I suppose she's saying women have never been considered important enough not to interrupt. You know, their work isn't important. Well, they haven't had any work. Their thoughts are not important. They don't have a room. She talks about Jane Austen writing always in the, you know, in the main living room and then hiding her work under a blotting paper and being grateful for the squeak of the hinge of the door so that she knows when someone's coming. So interruption is kind of the state of being a woman artist. I think that's what she's saying. Hmm. But the, her discussion of Austen is interesting in that she notes, what was the phrase, the common living room or whatever? I can't remember what the, the phrase like that, she uses yeah. to describe the room. But she also muses that that may have been the making of Austen. Yeah, yeah. That by being in that room and surrounded by the flow of people and the flow of life, there's something that you can observe there in a way that you can't locked away in a room. It's true. She, also, she says that Austen is basically a, a miraculous yes, that's right. um, exception. That part where she says here, the, mir- the chief miracle of Jane Austen is that here is a woman about the year 1800 writing without hate, without bitterness, without protest, without preaching. And that, you know, this is sort of near impossible, but Jane Austen pulled it off. And she really talks about Shakespeare and Jane Austen as the only two sort of incandescent great minds. Who write in a sexless way, which is... No, not in a sexless way. Yeah, I think so. They escape their sex. They don't write as of their sex. She develops that theme. Anyway, can we return to that? Because that's not the point I wanted yes, to get to the moment. Yes, that's a good one to return to, though. I'm mm, very interested mm, I agree. in that. That was the bit of the essay that stood out to me that I was not expecting. But I don't think she's talking about Austen as exceptional with respect to the privacy dimension. So the writing without anger, etc. Mm. she's exceptional in that way, and she finds that miraculous. But there's just something in there, the seedlings of an idea of the advantages of Austin's situation. That's something that she was able to, you know, a circumstance that 
that Virginia Woolf herself is arguing is less than ideal, nonetheless she was able to turn mm. to her advantage. And I, I but wonder about... do you think that's about... a material thing in that, or maybe it's a temperamental thing, in, you know, because she contrasts her with Charlotte Bronte, who yep. Woolf says, you know, that Charlotte Bronte had more genius in her, but she also had so much rage right. at the limitations forced upon her that she couldn't yeah, that express her, right? herself yeah. fully. Yeah. And that the rage at her not being allowed to go anywhere and engage in the world sort of twisted and deformed her work. But I think what's really interesting there is that unlike anybody else, Wolfe describes Charlotte Bronte as being interrupted by her own anger. Yeah. There the interruption comes from within and she sees her, yes, in the grip of a tremendous genius, but at the same time almost not being in control yeah. of that genius. But she also describes then Bronte as, uh, much like George Eliot, as inheriting tools that she couldn't handle properly, namely male sentences, masculine sentences, a particular mm. mode of writing. Uh, so she's raging with something that she doesn't have mastery of without. At the same time, she doesn't have mastery of her own emotions from within. And that's what leads to the almost the chaotic genius that characterizes her work. Okay, so this is directing us, I guess, to the point I was saying we should do later, but... There seems to be a very clear view in Virginia Woolf's mind, at least as expressed in this essay, that there is some kind of essential, perhaps even synaptic or hard difference biologically even between men and women, and that will express itself in the way even that they write. So this idea, which I'd never thought of in my life, this idea of male sentences and female sentences, men structure sentences this way, women structure sentences that way, etc. So she sets that up. And the, the issue for Charlotte Bronte, as far as Wolf is concerned, is because she has no tradition she's working within, because there's not an established mm. tradition of female writing because of the limitations that Wolf's identifying. All she can draw on are these things that are not her tradition. All she can draw on are effectively male sentences. And so there's a kind of ill-fitting adoption of this. That's not appropriate to her, whereas Jane Austen does transcend that. She manages to find the sentence that's befitting the, the female writer. From that then flows, I think, this idea that I was gesturing towards, which is that what the true master is able to do is come to some kind of harmonious meeting. So the male writer draws on the female aspects that dwell, sort of lurk within his brain and the female writer the reverse until there is some kind of balance or some kind mm. of harmony or something like that. Anger becomes transcendent because, you know, for reasons she kind of picks up on when she speaks about the social flow of things, you know, the man and the woman who get in the taxi at the end of the essay that she observes from above and she sees suddenly actually there is this thing of complementarity and mm cooperation and that part of the problem with the way she's even been talking about this is to view men as something apart and separate from women, a sort of, you know, opposition. And, and that infects, you know, the writer through the expression of anger that gets in the way of self-expression in the way we've described, etc. That it's when those things are transcended, when actually what's brought in is a kind of I don't know. I don't know what you would call it. It's an unleashing of the creative possibilities, I think, is kind of the way she's describing it, of a she balance. She talks about and incandescence, that when those things come together, you know, I think this thing of overcoming anger is really fascinating, that she basically says you cannot write a great work of art from anger. 
because mm. anger obliterates the writing and reveals only the writer, not the writing. Yeah. And, and it obliterates the characters and yes. the story, yeah. That's right. It just reveals the furious person behind the writing. So the ideas are kind of evaporate in your feeling of this rage. But I think also she's, you know, the difficulty for a woman writer is that, as you said, there's no tradition. There's there's no it's sort of like just clawing away through the dark towards a sensibility that nobody has shown her before. There's no way for her to find this except these miraculous sort of one-offs like Jane Austen. But I love that you know, the part which she says one must be man-womanly or woman-manly, genderless, mm. basically, which, of course, you know, she she herself wrote in that, in Orlando, and mm-hmm. had that sort of um, free-floating uh, sort of intellectual gender, I suppose. So why did you sense. both object when I said the genius that she identifies in Shakespeare and Austen is that they wrote in a sexless way? Yeah, uh, well, I don't want to speak for Charlotte. She does overtly identify Shakespeare as writing in a kind of androgynous mode, that there is a kind of purity of what it is that flows through him. Although, again, she says that that purity didn't come from nowhere. That's one of the things that she's trying to exemplify through her kind of fictional exploration of the brief and terrible life of Judith Shakespeare, a fictional Mm. character, uh, who was possessed by the same genius but was denied all of the institutional and social affordances that would allow a genius like a Judith Shakespeare, to emerge. So there is something, I think you're right, Charlotte, there's something almost sui generis about Shakespeare in the way that that Woolf writes about him. With Jane Austen, it is something different. It's not that she writes in a way that is sexless, but rather she writes in a manner that is not determined by male convention. There's a wonderful line where, for instance, uh, Jane Austen is depicted as reading a masculine sentence and laughing in the face of it, Mm. and then stepping aside and writing something that is all her own, that defies all of those conventions and yet emerges distinctly from her. So, here's the way that I would propose it. You know, one of the things that, say, J.R.R. Tolkien tries to sketch out in his Middle-earth universe is that everybody is polarized by, everybody responds to the presence of the one ring. People are terrified of her, do people lust after it? Apart from one being in the entire kind of Middle-earth universe who is entirely unaffected by it, it's a trinket. It's something that he can touch but not be affected by. It strikes me in the way that Wolf talks about power, superiority, ranking, Ranking becomes such an important theme as you go through the essay. Everybody is affected by it. Everybody is infected by it. And what she's trying to sketch out, and here Austin becomes a kind of signal character, what she's trying to sketch out is a way of thinking about creativity that denies retaliation, that denies ranking, that denies, in other words, some of these male attributes that she she associates with power, with virility, with aggression, and instead that tends towards something that is unaffected by them, but that also gives rise to possibilities that weren't there before. So, Austin doesn't strike me as being an androgynous instance of that, but rather as someone who demonstrates that it's possible not to be affected by these things, mm. not to be affected by power. What do you think, Charlotte? Have I made a mess of things? Um, no. I think she does 
refer to Jane Austen as a kind of freak of nature, you know, <laughs> that that she somehow in herself overcame all the obstacles. And at some point, Wolf says, we need the habit of freedom and the courage to write exactly what we think. Mm-hmm. And that's, I suppose, over the centuries, men had developed a habit of freedom because it was propped up by all these other things, usually women, you know, doing all the material providing um, in terms of the home and all that stuff. But that Austen somehow seized this habit of freedom that maybe was somehow kind of camouflaged or, you know, she wasn't wild and crazy genius like Charlotte Bronte, but she was sort of quietly observing and, you know, being quite lacerating sometimes of what she was seeing around her. But she somehow in her own mind developed this habit of freedom. I don't know if Wolf comes to any conclusions about how she did that. There's a, that great passage later in the essay where she picks up a book written by a male author after having looked at all these female authors and speaks about how great it was to read a male voice so mm, confident and so self-assured, right. which I think underscores that point. I guess the, the passages I was thinking of, I sort of just found them now. I mean, there's a few you could choose, but just, you know, to choose something. Um it's natural for the sexes to cooperate. One has a profound, if irrational, instinct in favour of the theory that the union of man and woman makes for the greatest satisfaction, the most complete happiness. And then later, if one is a man, still the woman part of the brain must have effect. And a woman also must have intercourse with the man in her. Mm. Coleridge perhaps meant this when he said that a great mind is androgynous. Uh, It's when this fusion takes place that the mind is fully fertilised and uses all its faculties. Perhaps a mind that is purely masculine cannot create any more than a mind that is purely feminine, I thought. It's that sort of idea that that surprised me, actually. because And maybe that's to do with the age that we're in. I don't know that that would be a wildly popular idea in in our time. Mm. I find it so exciting and... You know, I feel that we need to be reminded of that, that fiction is a place for freedom, not intellectual strictures, that we have sort of fallen, you know, by trying to create a a humane world where we include people who have been excluded until now. But imagine if if someone were to criticise a novel by a woman now by saying it's too female. Yeah, well... I mean, Wolf presumably would do that or would have done that at the time she wrote this. Mm. She did. It's worth saying that she did walk back quite significantly from the androgyny thesis um, after about another six or seven years. But wasn't the thing that she was trying to get at was the temptation to be confined by the judgment of another? Yeah. To be confined by the opinion. So, for instance, Charlotte, the passage that you referred to before uh, of the need for creative, the ability to write what she thinks, Mm. that comes in the final chapter as a kind of dare to the women who are listening to her. Don't you dare second guess what it is you write on Mm. the basis of how it might be received, how it might be judged by. And here she introduces if the first part of the essay is dominated by the figure of, say, the beetle or of the angry professor in the museum, Mm. this final chapter is dominated by the figure of the headmaster. It's really interesting where she she says that, you know, we're all caught in this 
private school game, a ranking game, where we all mm. try to outdo the other so that we can talk about a moment of kind of satire, of absurdity, so we can all go up on the platform and receive the highly ornamented, what is it, vase or receptacle or, or something. So she's saying, write with freedom. Don't write with the knowledge of your judges mm. leaning over your shoulder. She talks about the sort of forgettable novels lying around by women, I think. And she says something like the problem is that this writer has altered her values in deference to the opinion of others. Wrote for the reviews, in other words. Yeah, yeah. or just out of fear of being judged. I mean, I do think you know, contemporary writers are fearful of the judgment of, you know, not just critics, but the idea that, that of causing offence. I think that's increasingly a sort of bogeyman for us that really, really should be resisted because this habit of freedom and courage is the only way. But she talks about, what does she say about Shakespeare's mind? There's something about the unimpeded flow. Mm. His poetry flows from him free and unimpeded. If ever a mind was incandescent, unimpeded, it was Shakespeare. I just think it's so galvanising to have this sort of insistence on intellectual freedom being the absolute aim of the artist. And the corollary to that, which I found really interesting, was the way in which male writing she argues, had been impoverished by trying to react to the women's movement. Mm. That mm. Um, suddenly men, when they were writing, became self-consciously male and, and started writing. And wrote as, on purpose. That's the phrase that she uses. They began yeah. writing on purpose. Yeah. And so I guess that's a kind of stricture that they then either took on or imposed upon themselves or however you want to put it. But the theme is consistent, isn't it? That the stricture is the thing that compromises the quality of the writing. Yes. I find it so interesting when she talks about, you know, the male professors and all this criticism of women and their intellectual, what is it, their mental, physical and moral inferiority. And she talks about becoming angry herself when she's reading this and then thinks, why am I so angry? And then she says, because he's angry. And then she looks mm. at all this writing about in the museum, there are no books about women by women. They're all by men. And she says, why are they so angry? They control everything. What is it that's making them angry? And then she comes to the the idea that they're angry because they need to, to assert the inferiority of women because they're afraid that they are not superior. And she talks about that thing about the mirror, about you know the women's job has been to act as a mirror for men. Um, women possess the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of a man at twice his natural size. Mm. And that if yeah, she starts phrase. to tell the truth, he starts to shrink. And she might be mm. telling the truth about anything, but if, it, if it's not in service of propping up this, you know, superior view of a man, then that is going his rage has to take her down. I'm so glad, Charlotte, that you brought up that particular point, that particular scene in the library, because to my mind, it's so important on so many different levels. So you're right. She's trying to diagnose what is it that made her angry? And it's interesting to me that she doesn't see the anger as being inherent to her in the way that, say, it is for Charlotte Bronte. It's almost mm -hmm. as if she picked it up by osmosis, by sort of sitting around these books. And she discovers the anger lurking in her by a doodle that she draws instead of making copious notes on the books that, that she did. And she, but she's asking, what, where does this anger come from? It's coming from this imaginary professor. You could also think of it as, you know, he's the further instantiation or embodiment of the 
of the great bald dome that she's kind of residing within. And she asks, well, why is he angry? And you're right. She says that he's angry. He has everything. And she says, okay, maybe rich people could become angry if they begin to get fearful that poor people are going to take away what it is they have. But she says, I don't think that's what it is here. Instead, let me just quote, possibly when the professor insisted a little too emphatically upon the inferiority of women, he was concerned not with their inferiority, but his own superiority. That could have very easily been taken directly from Immanuel Kant. I actually think she prosecutes this argument much more effectively than Kant does. That when we are contemptuous of others, when we force others down, it's not so much that we are actively dehumanizing them because we believe that they are less than human. Mm -hmm. Rather, we are using them as a pedestal, a platform by which we can elevate ourselves. But this then becomes this hinge around which I think Virginia Woolf prosecutes something remarkable. She describes men in this respect, you know, need to be seen as being larger than themselves, as, you know, much greater stature. She sees this as not just a kind of moral deformity, but as something that covers up an inherent lack, something that they cannot see in themselves. Mm. And so she says, so that was in chapter two. In chapter three, she says, a true picture of a man as a whole can never be painted until a woman has described that spot the size of a shilling. In other words, they always have a deformed or partial view of themselves. Men need women novelists. It's more, that's the spot they cannot see, right? That's yes. the, the spot, spot they cannot see. yourself you can, on the back of your head, have. I think she puts it. Y- yes, yeah. but then she says, and Mr. Woodhouse from Emma and Mr. Kosorban from Middlemarch are spots of that size and nature. And given the fact that these are kind of ludicrous figures, here, once again, she's using absurdity, like the Manx cat, mm-hmm. like the description of the menu, to kind of poke in this superior facade as a way of lightening the tone, but in order to make a much more morally serious point. You are partial and morally blind unless others can help you see yourself more fully. Mm. There's some part, I'm not sure whereabouts it is, where she quotes a man saying of Rebecca West, that arrant feminist, (laughs) um, because she has said men are snobs somewhere. And she's, you know, reflecting on this, this rage in the man. And she says it is, what she says is a protest against some infringement of his power to believe in himself. Mm. I thought that was so potent and, you know, on this same topic that (laughs) these men need women to kind of magnify their power. And if they don't, then they can't believe in their power themselves. It's really fascinating. Can I ask both of you what you think of her central thesis, though, that it's ultimately material conditions, a certain level of material comfort that effectively decides whether or not someone can write. I think, Scott, you might have expanded that thesis to produce art earlier in this discussion. I think she argues it, or illustrates it, is probably better than argues it, I don't know, but persuasively in this piece. But then if you brought it out to art, I wonder, because, you know, the the trope of the the penniless artist, for example, Mm. the painter, is very well known. And, you know, you could tell all sorts of stories, potentially Van Gogh, but probably more relevantly someone like Sheila in the... 20th century, that these are endeavours of imagination, of creativity. 
You might argue they require a certain unfilteredness. I don't know. I'd be open to a discussion on that. But nonetheless, it doesn't seem that we would say the same of painters as we would for writers. Does that detract from her point? Does it mean that her point is true but only if confined to writing and, say, novels and poetry particularly? Or have I just got all that completely wrong, do you think? I I think there's so much um, romanticism about, you know, the penniless artist and speaking in, in contemporary life in Australia among the artists and writers that I know um, and in my own sort of beginnings as a writer, the stress of financial penury is not good for creativity. It may be good after the fact, you know, that you have known a certain kind of life and that opens you up to understanding of different ways that people live. But... I am right on her side with this. That you know, when she says one cannot think well, love well, sleep well if one has not dined well, mm. meaning that we we need resources with which to support the artistic life. And when you are really struggling to pay the mortgage, get food, whatever, you're fighting for resources. You're competing and clawing and desperately gathering resources just to live to allow yourself the time. So you don't have a full-time job because you need the time to write or paint or whatever. That stress, it just eats away at this sort of expansiveness um, required for creative production. And I, I do believe that. Years ago, I did a PhD on um, stuff about the creative process. And there's this study, a cognitive psychology study that I just found revelatory and it was a a meta-analysis of 25 years of mood and creativity research and it basically found that the most creative mood state came from a slightly positive affect, uh, a slight level of activation, sort of slight anticipation or excitement and a seeking of gain rather than avoiding pain. So sort of optimistic, gain-seeking feeling rather than fear, anxiety, stress, which is what we associate with, you know, the suffering artist. And personally, I know from my own experience, and people are all different, but that sort of anxious, fearful, stressed out, financially desperate state, it was only once I started making enough money to have more time to write that my books got better. I mean, I (laughs) think that's categorically true. You know, I think there are people who somehow work through that and maybe have the genius of Shakespeare or whatever. You but, don't think it forms their art, though? Um, or the, or well, the musician, I'm just not say. sure I mean, what there's, would have happened if, if they didn't have to go through that. You know, we don't know whether... I mean, all, all your life's experience forms your art, but I think it's romantic to suggest that that is necessarily a good thing, to have that kind of level of suffering. Can I oh, add? You can argue about whether it's a good thing or not. I just mean, I'm just talking about the necessary conditions for the production of art. So music might be another example. I, I remember an American musician once telling me, and apologies to Australian musicians who are listening to this, you may not like what he's about to say, but um, that he found that Australian music lacked ambition ultimately because it didn't come from a place of desperation mm. because ultimately life was too comfortable, even for people who are struggling here, compared to the American scenario where if you don't make it, you may not make it at all. You may not survive. And so for him, that inflected American 
music, it meant that it got to a level that Australian music didn't, not because of talent or anything like that, although obviously there are a lot of people in America and so a bigger pool is going to produce more genii, but just that there was something about the material conditions, the absence of material comfort, I guess, that was productive in that sort of a way. I don't mean to say that's romantic. I just wonder whether it's causative or whether literature Mm. is a different beast altogether Mm. to which none of those things, even if Mm. they do apply to other art forms, can apply to literature. I do think complacency is bad for art, bad for art making. If you're so comfortable that there was a kind of level of certainty, you know, that you didn't have to strive or try or... We all have to overcome sort of internal struggles, right, that I just, what am I trying to say? There's a U-shaped curve is what you're trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Too little and too much is the problem. Yeah, maybe that is it. I'm going to contradict myself now, but, you know, I contain multitudes. So Um, (laughs) I do think art that costs something is worth something and that there is often a depth that comes into a work of art from some level of struggle. I just don't think it has to be standard poverty. I mean, I think one of the reasons art is so poorly funded in this country is that there's a kind of punitive attitude towards artists that doesn't exist in lots of other cultures in that, well, you know, if you want to make art, you should suffer. And I do not agree. Can I just point out one thing that I think emerges really importantly from within Wolf's essay itself? It's something that has been, I, I believe, kind of systematically overlooked, but it's fundamentally important for, if you like, the moral substrate of the essay as a whole. You know, we've, we've talked about her meandering approach to the way the essay unfolds. She is interrupted, but she also interrupts herself. You mm. get the point with every single journey that she takes that it's non-teleological. She has no idea where she's going. She has no agenda She has nothing that she wants to arrive at, which is why, for instance, she'll float an idea, she'll ask a question, and then three chapters later, she'll, oh, this is probably the answer to that. Mm. So there is something genuinely open-ended, let's just call it non-purposive, in the sense that she doesn't have an agenda that she's following. But one of the things then that that lets her prize once you get to the sixth chapter is the necessity, the ability, as she describes it, to dream over books, to loiter at street corners, to let a line of thought dip deep into the stream. So all of these are kind of non-purposive or non-utilitarian activities. You need to give yourself to them without the stricture, this is what it must lead to, this is what I must find. Now, what does that mean then? What's the moral thing at the center of that? She says right at the very end of her piece that when we read Shakespeare's King Lear, or uh, Jane Austen's Emma, or Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. She says, one sees more intensely afterwards. Mm -hmm. The world seems bared of its covering and given an intense life. What she's describing there, I think, is the experience of engaging, or let's call it encountering, art, literature, where the ego, if you like, has been subtly but importantly set aside. Mm. She devotes a lot of time to the presence of the I in male literature. The I, which means that she can't see the background. She can't see the setting. She can't see the landscape. She can't see other subsidiary figures because of the I that looms in this text. It casts a shadow that allows nothing else to grow. Exactly. Mm. And there's something about the process of engaging with literature that has had the confidence, the time, let's put it, 
to renounce the centrality of the ego and to allow other things of importance to come to the surface that enables the world to be seen in a different light. And it may well be that when one is simply trying to survive, when one is caught up with one's own anger or need to Mm. retaliate or desperation, as she describes Bronte, rightly or wrongly, it may well be that you simply cannot do without the eye. You can't get beyond it. You can't Mm. get around it. And so one of the things that we give to artists when we give them time is help us see the world without the clouding effect of the ego, without this egocentricity, without insisting that everything must revolve around the orbit of this eye. She says um, when she's talking about the men's college lunch early on, you know, and she lists all this sort of sumptuous food and the wine and all of that, and she says that all of this produces the rich yellow flame of rational intercourse. Mm. No need to hurry, no need to sparkle, no need to be anybody but oneself. There's this sort of easeful relaxation. And then when she's talking about Shakespeare and his genius and his incandescence, she says that he has no desire anymore to protest, to preach, to settle a score, to make the world the witness of some hardship or grievance. So I think that echoes what you're saying, Scott, that with these sort of strictures placed upon artists, most grievously women, there is this sort of cage of rage that comes with that, that has to be overcome if you want to get to that point of no need to hurry, no need to sparkle, no need to be anybody but yourself, the habit of freedom, the courage to write exactly what we think. That that just appeals to me so greatly. There's no doubt it's appealing. And maybe the difference between literature and other forms of art is that the eye can predominate in other forms of art and mm. actually work really well. I think about that in... In music. Alas, all that's for another day. Charlotte, we're out of time, but thank you so much for helping us through this. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I've loved it. Charlotte Wood, award-winning Australian author. Her latest novel is Stoneyard Devotional, and she's been our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, not quite a book club or whatever it is that we call it. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.